Hi, my name's Alex Kelly, co-founder of Bright Flag, and this is In-House Outliers, a podcast where I interview those who've taken unconventional paths and challenged conventional notions of how in-house legal should operate. I am delighted to be joined today by two of my favorite people in the world of legal operations that I've had the pleasure of knowing for years now, Brenda Hansen and Liz Lugones, who are here to share their stories. Liz and Brenda are experts in all things legal operations, having worked in a variety of roles in-house, and most recently, they have been sharing their expertise with the broader community as senior members of the Uplevel Ops team. Liz, Brenda, you're both very welcome. Thank you. Thank you. We're happy to be here. Great. Well, let's start at the beginning. I'm always curious how the trailblazers in legal ops, like both of you, found their way into the space in the first place. Liz, can you take me back to your school days before legal ops was a career path like it is now? What was it that you wanted to do in life? <laughs> so I went to Rutgers in New Jersey and I double majored in political science and journalism. And I swore I was gonna end up in politics. I thought I was gonna go to law school, right? Cause I figured a law degree politics kind of makes sense. I loved campaigns and the whole aspect of that. And so I graduated, right? I did my internships did the whole thing. And I graduated and I had two job offers. One was to be the chief of staff of a mayor in a small local town in New Jersey. And the other one was to be um, an executive assistant slash paralegal to a general counsel of a startup. And there was a $30,000 salary difference. And I had student loans and I said, yep, that makes sense. I went with the in-house position with the aspirations. Yeah, I'm still going to go to law school, right? I'm in the legal I'm in a legal department, it kind of makes sense. I could do politics along the way. And so that, that was my early on career. And then from there, I just kept getting roles in house, right? I was, you know, that first role was amazing. It was probably, you know, I still refer back to it. It's where I learned the life cycle of a company. So um, the company was called Genesis Direct. It later was called Proteam.com. It was a privately held company. And it did a bunch of acquisitions while they were privately held. I helped plan an IPO for that company during the big dot-com boom. And um, back then you had your due diligence rooms, right? In an actual physical room with all the binders and the papers. And we had the duplicate room in a law firm in New York City, right? So we had to send the paper copies. So I did everything from planning for an IPO, doing investor relations, bunch of acquisitions, a bunch of dispositions, and then we filed for uh, bankruptcy, right? Because things didn't go so hot. And I was one of the last people uh, to shut, literally physically shut the lights in the building when, when things were, were done and, that, and the company just transformed into something different after, after that. And then I just ended up in corporate legal departments as a paralegal. I started out, so I was at Solomon Smith Barney, again, an old, an old name prior to, to Citigroup. And then I ended up in Citigroup in paralegal roles. And I do have to say, super, super blessed to have some fabulous mentors and sponsors, right? Back then I called them my godfathers who, who saw, I guess, the potential in me when I didn't think I had it. And they all always said, you can execute. You're really good at executing, right? So they took me wherever they went. So I had some really good mentors and coaches and I kind of moved around and Citigroup had various positions. And one day I woke up and it's and I was like, oh, I'm doing something like I'm doing a business role. I got into New York law school. And at that point, you know, I was married. I'm thinking of having a baby, but I'm doing, I'm having fun at work. And I'm, and I'm looking at all these lawyers and thinking, 
if I want to be you. <laughs> right? <laughs> but I realized like they needed, a, a, they couldn't do what I was doing, nor did they want to do what I was doing. And at that point in time, I was like, I don't, I don't think I want that debt right now, nor do I want the lifestyle of three years of what law school means and working at the same time. So I just stayed where I was at. And then one day I woke up and there was like this little career called legal operations. And then from there, I just, right. I was always had operations roles in various companies. So I went from Citigroup to AIG there. I was part of Alico again, planned for another IPO ended up being sold to MetLife, right? So it kind of, it's just a series of events in my career where I was able to see the various life cycles of a, of a company. So I have to say that really was helpful from an operations point of view to be able to see how to build a company, take a company apart, how it's all in, how the legal function is interconnected to the rest of the organization. And here I am consulting now. <laughs> and you just haven't quite got, got to that political stage in your career just yet Liz you might get back there someday to a political still it's still it's still there in the background and and my daughter certainly has caught the bug so maybe maybe through her I don't know right but uh it's definitely something that I that I always go back to and say hmm I wonder if never say never and and there's so much there there's so much there Liz around your experiences in organizations at different stage of, of their stages of scale in different industries, a startup through to large, some of the largest uh, financial institutions in the world. And I'm really uh, interested to kind of delve into, into what that means from a legal operations perspective in a moment. But Brenda, I might turn to you first of all. Uh, you studied law in college. What led you there in the first place? Yeah, uh, our paths are very different, even though we landed in the same spot. I started working at a law firm when I was in high school. So I was the jack of all trades, errand person, receptionist, file clerk, you name it. I did all of like the office kind of stuff. And I think about at that time, I knew that I wanted to be a paralegal. So I went to school to study to be a paralegal. And And at the time, my dad wasn't too sure that what that meant or what a paralegal meant. And my mom didn't think at the time that college was important. So we negotiated a deal that was go to a two plus two program. That's go for two years, get your associate's degree. If you like it, if you're successful, then you can move on. If not, you have something to walk away from. So I did and I loved it. And I stayed all four years and I knew that's what I wanted to do. And I worked for a small personal injury law firm in Springfield, Massachusetts. And it was challenging, but it wasn't what I wanted. Like personal injury was not as creative and challenging than I had expected being a paralegal would be. So I decided at the time that I wanted to move to the big city of Boston and I applied for jobs. And I got the first job that I applied for at Jackson Lewis as a litigation paralegal. And I remember I walked into their office. It was um, above Beacon Hill, if you guys are familiar with Boston, and it overlooked Boston Common. I swear I heard the LA Law theme song in the back of my head when I walked in for the interview. I was like, this is where I wanted to be. And then I was there for 10 years. The first four was as a paralegal. And during that time, way back when, 
it was when paralegals were literally bait stamping with a physical stamp documents for production and working with copy source companies to copy boxes of documents and that sort of thing. And I got bored pretty quickly. But like Liz, I had mentors and they were super supportive and gave me opportunities to work the business side of managing the department, managing the office. And one day, and this is a pretty famous story, one day I was at a firm retreat and I said to the head of the firm at the time, I want to be an office administrator. And he said, where? And I said, this side of the Mississippi. And two to three days later, I got a job offer to move to Washington, DC and packed my bags, had never been to DC, moved there and was the office administrator for seven years for DC and then helped open the Richmond office. You learn a lot when you're managing the business side of a law firm, like everything. I dealt with everything, things I didn't even know were existing. Billing became, on the law firm side, became my, my responsibility. I had to manage staff. I had, I incorporated different kinds of business lines, understood like the politics of, in, of law firm life and, and partnerships and things like that. And after seven years of doing that, I wanted to move back to Boston to be closer to family. And again, the story is the first job that I applied for, I got, and I moved to Boston as the ops manager. At the time, I think it was ops supervisor at Biogen. And I stayed there for 10 years. And my role consistently increased over time. So at first it was just e-billing manager. They were on the cusp of implementing their first e-billing tool. Um, I learned a lot of lessons there. And then it grew from that to managing staff, to being process manager, to being the chief of staff for the GC, then moving into a more global role for being the chief of staff globally for the GC. Then I landed at up level. So it's been, I only know how to work in a law environment. I've never really worked anywhere else. My family thinks I'm crazy. Um, my friends think I'm crazy, but it's what I love. And I think without having, like Liz said, key mentors to help guide you and also taking risks, right? Like I think the key to my success is I moved, I moved from Springfield, Mass to Boston Again, not knowing anyone was thought I could do the job, why not try it? Then moving from Boston to DC, same experience, not knowing anyone moving there, thought I would try it. Again, I knew Boston, so I was coming home, but I knew nothing about a biotech. Like I, science was not, is not my thing, but I went in and I knew I could do the job and and then coming to up-level, moving to consulting is a, was a risk and was a challenge and something that I wasn't sure I was going to love. Luckily, up-level is amazing. The people are amazing. I have great colleagues. Our clients are amazing. Our business partners like Bright Flag. It's about taking risks and being confident in your, in your skills and what you bring to the table. And um, Brenda, it's, it's interesting. Yourself and Liz both touched on something the importance of mentors in your career and and 
from experienced leaders in the legal ops space, it's, it's a common thread. I, I only spoke to Sheila Dassault at Faring Pharmaceuticals about this on a recent podcast and the role that mentors played for her in maybe pushing them out of their comfort zone a little bit, challenging the way they were thinking about things, encouraging them to take those risks that you, 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 you've both have kind of spoken about that you, you've taken along your career journeys. Liz, I might ask you, first of all, are there any kind of specific moments you, you remember from your early career where a mentor kind of challenged you on something or, or, or a work experience uh, it really stood with you and, and has stayed with you as a kind of a key principle in, in how you operate now? Totally. So I, want to, I do want to say that there's a distinction between mentorship and sponsorship. They're not always the, they're not always the same. And the one that I'm going to give you, he was both. So it's Ralph Gonzalez. We're friends to this day. He is the greatest leader, human being, right, that I've ever worked with. Um, I recall we were in the middle of the, the merger between Alico and MetLife. And actually, there's a, there's a few. There's, there's a few. So the first time, he and I, I'm going to backtrack a little bit. So he and I met at Citigroup. And he was originally from... GE, right? So as we know, they, they are known for, for their leadership and their particular approach. And we met in Citigroup's strategy and M&A group. So he was the head lawyer for the M&A function and then the business side. And I kind of supported the business side of M&A and the legal function in both. So that's where we got to know each other. And then, so when he got his GC role for Alico, he, he recruited me out so that I could help him plan, be his chief of staff and plan for the IPO or the sale of the company. It was during like that big financial crisis. And there were two pivotal moments advice that he gave me during that time. So when he recruited me, I had to go through the interview process. He knew he wanted me, but I had to meet everybody. And I met with his recruiter and she loved me, but apparently the comment was around how I looked, right? So I didn't, I didn't look like everybody else, right? I love my pumps. <laughs> um, and I have curly hair and wild hair, right? And I, and I love my dresses. And, and there was a comment around, she's great, but, you know, on the appearance side, you know, those heels were a little <laughs> risque. And, and he stood up for me. And he, and he said, she's not thinking with her feet. I'm bringing her for, her for her mind and her capability. Who cares what's on her feet? And right. But he actually had to advocate for me, right? Because there was this bias or this belief, perception that people had, which is one that I've always early on in my career had to battle. I just didn't look like everybody else in, in the corporate environment, especially the women. And the next one is when the merger happened and it was complete. And he told me, he's like, stay true to who you are. Be authentic. That is your greatest strength. To still, I still get weepy at the thought. And he's so, he's so true. And it's something that I try to bring. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little weepy because I love him so much, but it's something that I try to bring to my teams. Like if you can't be your true self, you are not going to succeed and I'm not going to get the best out of you. So you got to be, be you, whether that's super serious, it's super conservative, whether it's the, the extreme opposite or somewhere in between. And my role as your leader is to try to bring you to your best self, whatever that looks like. And then to put you in situations that kind of stretch you a little bit, right? And then you can find your next best self. It's always about how can I get myself or my team to find that wall that they hit and just keep banging on it enough 
till they get to the other side. And I have Ralph to thank for that. That's incredible, Liz. And it really resonates with us here at Bright Flag. That's one of our core values. Our four values is embrace authenticity and ensuring everybody on the team can, can be comfortable be there, being their authentic selves and be respected for, for who they are. And, and having a leader earlier, early in your career who stood up for you like that and, and probably gave you that, that insight and that principle that, that you carry with you now as a leader is, is amazing and certainly reflective of, of my experience working with you, working with, with, with the team at up level as well, which is such a diverse, fun group of people. And um, certainly, it's home. yeah, exactly, exactly. Brenda, I, I might ask you the same question in terms of a kind of an early, early insight you got from one of those mentors or a, a scenario in which they maybe pump, pu- pushed you out of your comfort zone a little bit. Yeah, definitely. So Mine was even earlier, one of the key people in my career that drove me and helped me push myself out of the, out of my comfort zone was a professor in college. So I went to a small, all women's college in Western Mass. I lived at home. So I commuted to school. I worked throughout college. Like I was confident, but not, but still unsure of myself throughout college, even though I did well and and I definitely blossomed. But when I had this opportunity to move and take the job at Jackson Lewis, I wasn't sure. Even though that was like, Boston was my dream job. I had always wished I'd gone to college in Boston. I still was very unsure about like, can I handle this kind of a job? Can I handle the move? And Ann Dotmeyer was my professor. I think she was a litigation professor but we just hit it off. And she said to me, what is a year going to do? Try it for a year. If you don't like it, then you move back and you start again. If you love it, then you've made the leap. And so I've gone into every aspect of my life from that, and especially my career. What is a year? I can, you know, if I don't like it in a year and a year goes by, as we all know, over most recent circumstances, a year goes by so fast. Before you know it, two years have passed, three and a half. I've been at up level for three and a half years. I think Steph and I had a conversation like, we'll try this out. We'll see how we like it. Three and a half years later, I'm loving it. And it's still like the best place. It's home, like Liz said. That was my first um, really someone who said, push the envelope and get outside of your comfort zone and try things. And then I think the other thing was I had a office administrator in Boston, Mary Jo, who kept saying, you know, you're good at what you do. Own that. Because I, as Liz will recognize and laugh, I second guess myself a lot more than people might think. She kept saying to me every single time, you can do this. You know you can do it. Just do it and stop worrying about what um, what others are going to say or what others are going to think. And for me, that has been really significant in me making career choices and feeling confident going into these leadership roles one after another. I mean, I literally asked for my job when I went to be the office administrator. And then when I went to Biogen, I got my job at Biogen and there was a bunch of discussions and I was kind of cocky about 
the job. Like I remember talking to the recruiter and saying, they need someone to help answer the phone. I can give them a schedule today, like how to make that happen. And she was like, okay, you know, you're confident in this. And I was like, I do. And I think that confidence helped the GC understand where I was coming from. I wasn't rattled by the department or the size of the department and the kind of company that it was. And it served me well throughout my time at Biogen because I, I realized that I can do anything and I should just believe that I can do it and lead people there. So that those are the two, a couple of lessons that I learned. Well, certainly, Brenda, I can attest to your, your incredible capabilities and expertise, and I'm going to Thank you. Uh, drill into all of that in a moment. And I think there's, there's great learnings there for anybody at an early stage in their legal operations career or considering kind of trying to, to break into the legal operations space, the importance of, of having a mentor. There's obviously great leaders in the space like yourself and Liz now that maybe weren't there if you were to rewind five or 10 years ago. And there's a more clearly defined path. But I think it's so important, as you say, to have those people who, who maybe push you out of your comfort zone a little bit, but also are your champion and are kind of highlighting what you are great at and giving you that encouragement uh, along the journey. So I, I certainly have, have, have had a similar experience, the importance of having those, those mentors along the way. Maybe more specifically now, turning to your legal operations experiences, Liz, I'm going to ask you, first of all, a difficult question. You've obviously worked in large financial institutions and in, in, in earlier stage startups. Can you pick out one legal operations project that you're most proud of and maybe talk about what it involved and some of the challenges you had to overcome along the way? Oh, it's going to be, I think it's going to be a toss up between Beckton Dickinson and WeWork. I'm going to go with WeWork, even though I'm very proud of what we did at Beckton Dickinson. My team there was awesome. I'm going to go with WeWork because, as I think it's no secret, right, that that definitely was a story to be told, and it's still being told on <laughs> documentaries and books and podcasts all over. But it was an amazing experience in which I, I literally saw, you know, the everything that I learned throughout added up to my ability to be able to, to do what I did there during a very exciting <laughs> and, and challenging and challenging time. And so I actually landed at WeWork. I'll just be quick about it, right? I landed at WeWork through a consulting gig. I was working with United Lex and um, WeWork was their client and they wanted, they needed, right? Somebody to be in and, and manage their operations team while they were recruiting, right? They knew they had a lot of operations work to do. So I came in and worked with that legal department and my job was to help them recruit for for the head of legal ops and in the meantime kind of give them that vision and strategy as to where legal ops should be because as we all know they were scaling to to do an IPO I, I I guess I guess I did good right because we ended up liking each other and I ended up becoming the head of, of legal ops there and and there although they had legal ops functions like they had e-billing they kind of had the concept they didn't have the strategy around that and so very quickly, like in, in, in a speedy fashion known for WeWork, I had to build a function, a strategy and execute in that under that, like within in a year, which included recruiting a team, knowing, right, understanding what I needed, really work closely with a team that was there. They were really solid talent, right? They just needed the guidance and the leadership and a vision to march towards. There's some 
great people there and, and, and bring them all together to like kind of march forward. So it was all around, all right, we need to solve for our e-billing issue, right? No longer what, what we had a great tool, but it wasn't, it's not scalable to where they needed to be and the complexity that they had. They had contracting was ridiculous, right? <laughs> the amount of contracts and the volumes on the real estate side, on the commercial contracts was huge. What, what is that vision? What are the pain points that we're trying to solve for? So there's where I got introduced really to what, what's workflow, right? Um, <laughs> and I think that's where I first met Bright Flag. So, so more on that. Um, and right, learned, got, like, you know, stuck my teeth into contracting processes and the all aspects of contra contract lifecycle management and what that means. And in the middle of a crisis, right, all of a sudden we're not going into an IPO. There was a lot of doubt that I was able to secure funding for switching out of e-billing and getting into e-billing, more robust e-billing matter management, being able to get workflow management tools, being able to get negotiating AI technology. I was able to secure funding for all of that. I was able to articulate in with, with the help of my team who helped with a lot of you know, digging into the pain points and understanding current state, understanding the vision and the desires of the organization, together that team, both on the IT side and in the legal ops, we were able to paint a pretty compelling business case that during a time in which they were scaling back on investments, the IPO did not go through, right? That, that first time that I was able to you know, we were able to get the funding, right? We, we made the story that we can uh, rationalize the tech stack, get rid of duplicative technologies and consolidate into, into lesser that the upfront investment in the long-term was going to be a savings of, you know, people's time, which translates into dollars, was going to be a savings in license costs over time. And to, to that, you know, to be able to get to that hurdle in the middle of chaos, and keep my team focused, keep each other focused, <laughs> keep myself focused and energized, I think has been one of the greatest experiences I've ever had. And I, and I try to bring that to my clients today because all of our clients have their own challenges, right? Their own hurdles. They're, they're constantly changing and evolving and they have to build business cases. And I'm like, I got this. This is fine. <laughs> this is just noise. Um, so yeah, that was definitely... A, a one of the highlights of my career. And Liz, I think you, you touched on something there that is so important, which is the distinction between kind of tactically implementing one specific solution uh, and, and the legal operations functioning existing at a very tactical level within the legal team and the broader vision and the broader business and what you did at WeWork, which is take a step back understand in this rapidly scaling organization what are the key business requirements from the legal department what are the key challenges you're gonna you're gonna face as you scale and then build a vision and a strategy obviously entailing individual components like contract management and workflow and spend and matter management but but part of a broader vision and, and understanding how you you tell that story bring a team on the journey get the buy-in internally in terms of the ROI that's going to deliver. And I think that's such an important message in terms of the distinction between a kind of narrow tactical approach to legal operations and, and what I see the up-level team do every day and how you work with your customers, which is take that step back and look at a, at a kind of a broader strategy. Brenda, turning to you, I'm going to ask you a more specific question. 
something we've spoken about at length over the years, building the relationship with finance. What are your biggest learnings over your career or maybe specifically your time at Biogen and how to go about doing that effectively? You should have known this question was going to come from you, Alex. It's like our, I think we had our first conversation about that way back when. I have to say, I, again, really lucky to work with finance business partners at Biogen who were open to teaching me what was important to a corporate setting. The two notable moments were at the very beginning of my career at Biogen, our GC wanted standard reports and, and everyone should be nodding their heads if they recognize this. They wanted, she wanted the same report every month, right? With the same details every month. She wanted the look to look exactly the same. Like these are not unreasonable requests, but finance had trouble doing that every month in the same manner in which we had talked about the previous month. And so finally the finance business partner and I sat in a room and I was like, look, we're both going to get in trouble here. <laughs> like if we don't get this straight and I'm not ready to like throw the white flag down and surrender to this, we need to get this done. And we created reports that the GC wanted. And over the 10 years that I was there, the report stayed the same after that. And it was, it, so it was exactly the kind of information that she wanted, exactly the kind of data that was meaningful to her to be able to manage the budget. So for me, building those relationships with finance is really about, it worked because we had to tackle an issue. And that was only, that was a very minor issue. SOX compliancy was the other challenge. Like I mentioned before, I walked in and Biogen was implementing their very first e-billing tool. They were a month away from implementation and I walked in the door. The only e-billing tool that I had ever used was from the law firm side. And I only did like collecting the, the data from my internal attorneys, but there was a whole accounting department who did everything else. So I didn't actually submit invoices into a tool. And then we went live and audit came and said, so you're SOX compliant, right? And I'm like, wait, what is that? I, I guess, and they were like, nope. So I spent a summer in a conference room with the audit guy and the finance business partner. And over and over, they explained why this was important, what the rules were, what the qualifications were. So now I can work with our clients and I know exactly where the, the pain points are when audit is looking to see if an e-billing tool is going to meet their expectations. I think the key is being inquisitive with finance and being open to hearing their point of view and finding the happy medium between the two because legal wants to do the right thing. Finance needs them to do the right thing, but sometimes the two departments aren't speaking the same language. And I think it's on legal ops to find that common ground and translate what legal's needs are versus what, and hopefully you find a business partner that you can really connect with and can explain to you why it's important from the finance side. And then you can come, you broker an opportunity or figure out a solution that can help bridge that gap. And once you do that, and once you start showing finance that the legal department is fiscally responsible and is doing what's fiduciarily responsible of them to make sure that we're paying all of our bills, 
and doing it on time and managing our finances and our budget, then they're less likely to feel like they're dad looking down at you and giving in, you know, not giving you any more allowance and that sort of thing. You really need to be open to them and hear what's important to them in order to build a, a strong foundation with them. Absolutely. And I think it is a kind of fundamental pillar for any legal ops leader to have that good relationship with finance and those early wins, having projects to work on where you can build that trust, mm-hmm. build that relationship. I think you you and I have seen over the years, over time, that enables you to do more and more and uh, and, and it, it to really benefit both the legal t- team and the business in terms of uh, how the two work together. I'd be interested in, in understanding, Liz, I think one of the things we've certainly seen over the last 12 to 18 months is legal operations as a function is no longer just uh, required in the largest legal teams like City or like Biogen, but increasingly smaller legal teams, general counsel uh, that maybe have a team of five to, to 20 lawyers, in-house lawyers, are starting to invest earlier in legal operations and putting in place a legal operations strategy. When you're speaking to general counsel like that who want to improve legal service delivery and don't quite know where to begin on that journey, what would be your starting point in those conversations with them about, about what they should be thinking about? You know, we're seeing the same thing on our side, right? We, we have legal departments that are, are a department of one, <laughs> of one to two, all, all the way up the, up the gamut, right? So we were kind of, and a lot of them are like right in between, right? And they have the challenge of, they know they need it. They don't have, they don't have the headcount, enough headcount to do it. And if they do have the headcount where they should be putting it, and they need to make the business case right for investment on, on technology. And so when we have those initial conversations, it's really working with the GC to understand what are the expectations of the company, of the legal function? What, is, what are the priorities and the strategy of the company? And then that of the legal department. And then we kind of look at then we will we'll have a conversation. So what are your pain points? What are your challenges? What's working well and what's not working well? And although that sounds super high level, but it's necessary to really understand and be able to pinpoint how to prioritize and where to start first and kind of build your roadmap. And it's important for a GC and we try to articulate, this isn't a one and done. It's, it's literally an evolution. <laughs> And you're, you could build a strategy today for legal operations and how you're going to deliver your legal services, and it may change two years from now, and you have to be able to pivot and you know, redesign because your company two years from now will be different and will be doing the same. So try to work closely with them on being able to build that and, and, and build a roadmap that is actionable and allows them to kind of change it over time. And then tell them, okay, so maybe maybe this year you just need to get your financial house in order. And that means establishing an outside council management program, right? Enabling it through technology. If you're not at if you're not at the 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 dollar amount where it makes sense to make make that possible for you to right get e-billing, for example, an e-billing tool, there are there are processes we can put in place to make that more, more manageable, right? And maybe the e-billing is not where you make your investment. Maybe where you make your investment first is some lightweight workflow or 
tapping into O365, for example, or how can you make your Google environment better, right? Because you know a lot of these companies that are in the smaller side, they're they're in a Google shop. So, what is it that we can do from a, a process point of view, from a collaboration point of view, first to make things better, so that when you're ready to make those investments, you at least have, have some of that down, some of that behavior and operational rigor down that'll allow you to kind of scale and evolve over time. And Liz, I think what you've what you've articulated there has been at the heart of the success of the up-level team in growing, growing the up-level business, but but most importantly, enabling general counsel, legal leaders within legal teams to kind of step out of the day-to-day, benefit from all of your experiences in, in not just solving one kind of short-term pain point, but building a longer term strategy. And, and as you spoke about, and we see with our customers every day, going on a journey, understanding it isn't a kind of a set and forget with, with one specific pain point. But, but what I see very often is it is difficult for those general counsel, for those legal leaders to kind of break out of the reactive legal service loop where they are just dealing with a fire hose of, of legal service requests, different, different issues coming from the business. And, and it is very difficult to kind of create the space and have the expertise to, to, to effectively partner with the business in real time and build a plan like that. Brenda, from your perspective, how do legal teams go about breaking out of that loop? And, and how does Uplevel specifically kind of work with them on that? From my perspective, the key here is understanding that it is an evolution. And one Legal apps, I think Liz and I both say this all the time, it's one step after the other. Like it's not this big bang theory where everything happens all at the same time. It is like take one little step and then move on to the next and have it building blocks build up to a larger program or addressing all of your challenges. I think what we do is oftentimes we get calls about, we just need a technology. What we do at Uplevel is slow down that selection. We, we understand that you want the tool, but the tool is not going to be the answer, the process, and the thinking behind it is going to be the answer. The tool is just going to implement it in a way that makes it more streamlined and gives you the metrics on the backside. So I think we work really hard to explain the full cycle of how change and innovation happens. I think legal departments and GCs are thinking more about solving the immediate problem. And so we wanna, we wanna solve that for them quickly as well, but we wanna take a step back. And I think what I try to do is let them hear sort of our pain points or our stories about our past experiences to help educate where, where if you go with just choosing a tool, this is what's gonna happen because we've done it, I've done it, Liz has done it. Like, let us give you our experiences to get you in the right direction of where where to go. I also think it's really important for GCs and legal departments to think about, and this is less so now than it was when I first started in legal ops. A legal department is not a law firm at a company. Right. And it's there's the philosophy has definitely changed over the years, but it's a business unit within a company. So it needs to operate like a business unit. And if you have a sales ops organization or if you have HR ops organization, you should have probably legal ops within that, too. And 
help think about how do you make that department work as efficiently as possible in connection with all the other departments so that your company is successful. And that I think is the change from when I first started in legal ops when everything was very similar to what it looked like in the law firm. Just now we're in a company. Couldn't agree more, Brenda. And internally at Bright Flag, we were only discussing this earlier today as we're, we're now in December, uh, we're looking towards 2022. And, and we have a lot of conviction that that next year, 2022, is the year the legal operations function, the kind of the mindset around legal operations will go mainstream uh, within those smaller legal teams that Liz mentioned, the one to 10 mm -hmm. lawyer size legal teams as much as the largest ones. And that the benefits that legal operations can deliver apply just as much to teams at that point of scale, particularly as we're still living through COVID, the impact that's having not just on everyone's personal lives, but impacting businesses and, and legal teams in a multitude of ways. I'd be interested, maybe Liz, from your perspective, what are the key challenges you see legal teams facing in, in 2022? And, and do you see legal operations, the kind of adoption of legal operations accelerating because of the kind of macro level environment we're all living in with COVID, where there is more demand coming on the legal function and more challenges in how, in how everyone's working, particularly when they may be now remote, when they were all in a more traditional office environment previously? Absolutely. And I think this is going to, you know, this is going to dovetail nicely into a continuation of the conversation Brenda was just having with you on how we work with general counsels and the scaling. I, I think for sure, the fact that we're all remote and I think we'll probably end up hybrid in some way, shape or form, right? So which means information and relationships now more than ever need to be created and maintained digitally. It doesn't mean that we're not going to be in the office, we're not gonna be doing conferences, but there is gonna to have to be this balance in life, right? I don't, I don't think we're going back to the way things were. And so how do we execute on that and how do we maintain it is gonna be critical. And I think it will absolutely require legal operations a function and a legal operations mindset in order to be able to make it successful. You know, how do you not only implement technology, but how do you enable that and enable your, your people to use it in the most effective way? How do you get them through that change management journey so they realize that your Slack or your Teams channel or what have you is your virtual office, right? There's no, there's no difference in me walking down the hall to Charlie and knocking on his door and saying, do you have a minute for a quick question than me knocking on the Slack channel being like, do you have a minute for a quick question, right? Like the speed of information, the accessibility could be the same. It's just creating the comfort and rethinking the boundaries and how we create those boundaries. So it's not overload, right? Because there's such a thing as burnout and we're constantly on and attached to a device, but is how do we create that balance and that that digital flexibility, right? In order in order to make it successful, and and for that, I think legal ops is, is going to be critical because we we understand process, we understand their interconnection between HR and finance and IT. They are your best friends. They will be your best friends. They have to be your best friends, right? Like you have, you have to bring them along in the journey, right? You have to understand each other in order and in order for the legal department, for the GC, its leadership to be successful, they're going to have to have that like mindset and rigor. And that's where I think where legal ops 
an up level is really nicely positioned, and I'm going to make a shameless plug here, is that real, you know, the majority of us have been chief of staff, right? Legal ops, we, we've done this, and we can be that great partner to a general counsel, right? So when you're in legal ops, that relationship between a general counsel and their legal ops person is important. The, the relationship between legal ops and the leadership and and everybody else, right? Every every other person is important within the legal department is significant, right? And so if you're a GC out there and you don't have the headcount, then it's okay to reach out to experts like us or, or, or somewhere else to be those eyes and ears and help you strategize for a short term, right? So consider consider how you can build that digital fluency, consider how you could build that legal operations mindset because legal ops is not just about the widgets that you have and the processes that you have in place. It's about a mindset and tap into some experts, even if it's for a few months to help you in that and, and help you kind of grow and scale. And then you could build your, build your plan because the, the world of law has changed and it's going to continue to change for the better, right? It's, it's, it's all yeah. about like technology is not going to replace the great legal minds, right? Nothing can replace good judgment, managing risk, being able to be creative in contracting, right? The, the building of the word, all that is still going to exist. What operations does is enable it to its greatest degree, get you information faster so you could pivot faster so that you can see trends and risks faster so that you can then put that great legal mind to work. And Liz, certainly... I've seen this from our perspective, the benefit that some of our mutual customers are continuing to experience from the kind of early work they did with Uplevel where the general counsel or the chief legal officer partnered with yourselves in devising a long-term strategy and fast forward three or four years to wherever we are today, they're reaping the rewards of that. And they've gone from probably a situation where they had no legal ops function, no technology in place, no, no defined processes to align with what the business needed to a very different legal team, kind of a legal ops function, which has been established, which is delivering value technologies for which are automating processes. So I've certainly seen the benefit of a kind of well thought out strategy devised with yourselves, translating into a very different legal function that, that enables the GC and the whole legal team to work in a, in a fundamentally different way. And Brenda, one thing that always interests me is Having worked as a lawyer in a law firm, I know very often the appeal for lawyers who move from law firms in-house is, number one, to kind of be working as part of a business and to be closer to a business as you articulated as a business unit within it, but number two, to also have a better work-life balance. But as we've spoken about, sometimes that can actually be pretty challenging both because of if you're stuck in that reactive loop of just dealing with the firehouse requests coming from the business mm -hmm. in a legal function, working in an inefficient way, but also, as Liz alluded to, just the reality of us all being more connected now, using these tools when we're working remotely, maybe it being more challenging to switch off from work. What, what in your experience would you say to general counsel about how they can ensure their legal teams have a better work-life balance while delivering the business objectives they need and, and the role that legal operations can play within that. It's actually where the comment that I wanted to make in response to Liz's conversation is that legal ops is traditionally just thought of, of 
very oftentimes the process person, the tool, the technology person, you know, and when you move to achieve a staff role, you definitely are more a communications guide for the general counsel. But I think one of the best things that legal ops does or a person in legal ops is, is you are the change management champion and you're the people champion of the organization. And I think one of my most prideful successes was when I had some attorneys in our department and staff, like paralegals and, and administrative staff, were not keen on this direction that we were going on. And after six months of hard conversations, they actually promoted to somebody outside of the organization the success of that project. I was like, I, I did it. Like it, it, it had some bumps, but people were really glad about it in the, at the after effect. So I think that's the key to GCs is that legal ops brings the technical, the business process, the rigor along with how to manage a legal department and how to manage workflows and things about creative solutions. But it also gives you insight as to what the teams are feeling at, at that moment in time when you're doing this. And we instruct our GCs all the time. It is the roadmap, right? It's the strategy. You can't do it all, like we said at the very beginning of the call, you can't do it all at the same time because that disrupts the work-life balance of employees. Employees were gonna feel like they're burdened upon, they're burdened upon about the work and that should always be the forefront of the conversation. But then if they're burdened on, how do I create a matter in an e-billing tool because I haven't learned how to do it or it's all this huge change, everyone's gonna feel disruptive. And I think in the sense of this time of during COVID and during the pandemic where so much was changing both personally and professionally, legal ops can help bring sort of a settled calm to the organization and write the directions of and make adjustments along the way as to we're going to work on this it's not as fast as we thought we were going to do it but we're going to do it slowly and be thoughtful about where the change is going to happen and be impactful to the organization as a whole and i think that's the part that i think up level really does well is that we really understand and we work with our clients to understand the people within their organization and how it's not one size fits all solutioning. Every, my clients that I work on and Liz's clients have very different environments, different challenges. They wanna work on, like everyone wants to work on culture, but what that means is different in every organization and legal apps can help and up level I think helps build that sort of vision for GCs to start executing on in a very digestible manner for the for the department. Absolutely. And I think what's so exciting for the kind of the legal operations community more generally is I think there is a new generation of general counsel who are probably mm -hmm. more tech savvy, more forward thinking that are emerging legal operations is just more well understood in the industry because of movements like clock and, and the efforts of experts in the space like yourselves. And I think what's really exciting is that increasingly we're seeing our most successful customers are those where the GC really views the head of legal operations as their right hand person, the chief of staff with a much broader remit than 
technology specialist or, or the person yeah. owning a particular point solution. But as you say, owning change, having a pulse on what's going on in the function, understanding and having empathy for, for the lawyers, for the finance team, for the law firms even. So um, yeah. I, I think that's so important. And I think, as you say, the starting point is getting clarity on that vision and that strategy as, as a legal team and as a legal leader. And I was gonna say, and we see a lot too of a lot of GCs, like newer GCs are coming from more established organizations that had legal ops and really relied on legal ops. So for us, that's a little bit of a win because they go into their organizations and they know the, the advantages and the benefits of having a legal ops perspective and a person. The business case of if they can get a person or not is a whole nother story that we help with, but they already know that there's some advantages there. So they are looking, even the law, you know, even the law departments that are two people, like Liz mentioned, are thinking about, okay, I might not get a person, but I know I need to map out contract management or our spend is out of control. So now we need to figure out how to manage outside counsel spend. They're already going in with the knowledge that ops can be helpful. And they just need to start building it within their organization or at least the mindset. So that's where we can help them as well. And I think it's an advantage to the industry, as you had pointed out, like we're seeing the tide turn where everyone's going to have a legal ops person at some point. Uh, I couldn't agree more. And I know, Brenda Liz, we could probably spend another three hours discussing what 2022 is going to look like in legal ops. But final question for me. Liz, I might, I might ask you, first of all, unrelated to the world of legal operations, did you develop any new hobbies during the pandemic, number one? And number two, have you kept them up? New hobbies. I think I doubled down on one and rediscovered another one. So I'm going to give you two. So I've, physical fitness and my physical well-being is very much interconnected to my emotional and mental well-being. And now that I'm older, <laughs> right? I can't, I can't be as aggressive, right? I, you know, I'm really, I tend to be very intense as people will probably tell you, right? So I, I love, you know, hit workouts and boxing and really intense stuff, but you can't always do that. So I found yoga and yoga has become a part of basically my daily routine. So I, I, I'll definitely lift and I'll get on my Peloton and I'll, I'll do, other other stuff but yoga is always a way for me to recenter especially after sitting so much it's just I need something and audiobooks so I've discovered I've always liked to read but I found it really hard to read things for knowledge and self-improvement like hold a book that way so I now listen to audiobooks for knowledge and self-improvement and I read a physical books for fun so that's what I discovered <laughs> great and I was patting myself on the back Liz for my my pandemic thing was starting to exercise twice a week. It sounds like you've knocked that out of the park, blown that out of the water with your level of, of exercise. Um, I, I could definitely give you a challenge. <laughs> I, I could do with it, Liz. I've, I've fallen off the wagon a little bit on the exercise front, so I might, I might take you up on that. Brenda, I might ask you the same question before we finish up. Did you develop any new hobbies? I found gardening to be a very relaxing uh, hobby that I had never done before during the pandemic. And then I will admit, I um, leaned towards learning how to make craft cocktails during the pandemic. So after you do the planks with Liz, you can come see me and I will show you how to make a, a, a good cocktail. I'm driving oh, back amazing. up to Boston. You're going to make it. <laughs> <Yeah, right. laughs> 
I, I will definitely take you up on that, Brenda. I, I also tried to dabble with a herb garden at home that lasted about a month before the, the herbs all died and withered. <laughs> so yeah, I wasn't as successful as you, but yeah, gardening is definitely a mindful activity, I'm sure, probably getting a little bit chilly this time of year in, in Boston. Yeah, now it's covered up, but I'm looking forward to the spring again in round three and see how I do on round three. Fantastic. Well, Brenda, Liz, thank you so much for, for joining me uh, as ever. It's been a lot of fun. I've learned a huge amount from the conversation. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. This is awesome. I'm Alex Kelly, host of the In-House Outliers podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Brightflag, an AI-powered legal operations platform where corporate legal departments gain visibility into operations maximize productivity and engage with outside counsel strategically. If you like this episode, then you can find more information in our show notes. If you want to hear more, then you can also find more episodes at brightflag.com forward slash legal hyphen operations hyphen podcast. Thanks again for listening to the In-House Outliers podcast. We'll see you again next time.